and welcome to part two of our series on the small little book in the New Testament, the letter of First Peter. If you weren't with us last week, just to recap very briefly, we took a look at how this letter is ultimately written to a group of Christians that have been dispersed throughout parts of the world away from where they were safe and how they were experiencing certain consequences or implications of that. So in some cases, there, was, there were levels of persecution. Peter knew that the persecution would increase dramatically and without exaggerating, uh, it eventually got to a point. They weren't there yet when he wrote this, but it would get to a point where Christians, uh, in some cases, would be sown to the backs of animals until they were dragged to the death. In other cases, Nero, the emperor, would actually cover them with wax and light them in his gardens, uh, like with fire, to, to produce light in the gardens, and he called them Roman candles. Like, it got hectic. It got hectic. Peter himself <coughs> had been imprisoned, beaten, etc., and uh, eventually was crucified. So, so he was basically trying to say to his readers, don't be surprised. So last week we, look at, we looked at the fact that we shouldn't be surprised if they're suffering, but more importantly, how we can be secure in that suffering. So that was last week. Today I want to take a look, I want to kind of move on to the next portion. So we, we're going through, the bio, uh, through this book quite systematically. I want to take a look at the next part. So he's saying you can be secure, don't be surprised. But then he also calls these Christians in these contexts. So this is for those of you that are following Jesus today. He's saying that, that in spite of challenges, persecution, distraction, disruption, etc., we are actually called to be different. We are called to be set apart. Not to be set apart in the sense that it's us versus them or, or for it to be a case of insiders and outsiders and for, the, and for to kind of feed any kind of animosity or hatred, rather to be set apart so that you can actually be a blessing, so that you can actually be salt and light, so that you can actually be uh, life-giving to the people around you. Last week, we ended off with chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. So I'm going to recap the very first part of verse 10 and the second part of verse 12, where it said, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about. So, so Peter was saying, like the, the people in the Old Testament who prophesied about what was going to come, so the fact that you could have security in salvation, which means a relationship with God, the freedom of forgiveness and the freedom that comes from following him. He says, even the people that prophesied about this stuff were eager to understand this a little bit more. He's saying, hey, you, you, yes, you're facing challenges, but you're actually privileged that you're getting to experience this relationship with God, which is different to the, the level of access that followers of God had in the Old Testament. And then the last part of verse 12 says, it is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. The, the point that was made last week is that <clears throat> the, the, the original word in this language, uh, so, so when it was written first in Greek, actually describes a type of balcony in heaven where, where the angels are kind of like, the idea is that metaphorically they're kind of like watching, looking, excited to see what's, what's happening next. So yes, the challenges, yes, there, there may be <clears throat> disruption, discouragement, but, but make no mistake, there's a bigger picture taking place. There's a bigger narrative that is being unfolded. And then we move on to where we're starting today with verse 13. So because of all of this, because of salvation, because of the grace of God, because of your relationship with Him, He then says, so prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Our minds matter. And by the way, being self-controlled is also the only way to actually be a blessing when there are disagreements, differences, when values are different, when, when worldviews are different, the idea is not to hurt people with your sense of 
rightness or righteousness, is to actually be self-controlled and life-giving. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope, here he reminds us again, in the gracious salvation that'll come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So, again, he's saying because of all of this, therefore, so, you must live as God's obedient children. Now, just to quickly encourage you, in case you think that that's just another list of rules that you have to follow, I want to argue that it's actually quite different. There's a sense of, in fact, Jesus says in, or he's recorded in John 14 saying, I think it's 14 verse 15, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. If you love me, if you trust me, think about it. If we trust God and we actually trust his plan, we trust his way, if we trust God, a very natural byproduct will be that we'll want to obey him. So, you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy. Here's the key word for today. You must be holy, which I know triggers some people like, like hectic. I have to be perfect. I have to be righteous. We, we, we have different senses of what that might mean morally, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear. That's not like an anxious thing. That's a, no, again, I respect you. There's a reverence of him during your time here as temporary residence. This is the third week in a row that I'm reminding you that we're temporary residents. This isn't home. None of us are home yet. We are, the Bible uses language like foreigners, temporary residents, um, strangers. We're passing through. This is the campsite. This isn't our fixed or permanent home. And then 1 Peter 2 verse 1 starts with, so, again, a whole bunch of so's. So because of all of these things, get rid of all evil behavior. He's covering everything. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Now again, before we get too distracted by thinking, well, all evil behavior or thinking in terms of holy, all of this is just referring to a bunch of stuff that we have to do and do right. Now, it may involve an element of that, but if we get the order right, it becomes a natural byproduct. So in other words, everything is about what we have on the wall over there, which is Jesus' summary of what it means to live for God, what it means to love Him, what it means to follow Him and obey Him. It's like everything falls under love people, love God. Love God, love people. If we are loving people, we're not going to want to deceive one another. We're not going to be hypocrites. We're not going to be jealous. We're actually going to celebrate. We're not going to be unkind in our speech. That doesn't mean that you don't tell the truth, but you tell the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4 says, so all of this, I just want to be, I think that, that society and even the church to some extent, historically, has often fed this narrative that, that morality is, is just a bunch of technicalities. And yes, it does involve certain things. So yes, it does, it does involve, let me not murder someone. Sure, it's a law. Sure, it's a rule. But, but it's not just so that I, don't, I technically don't murder someone. It's actually motivated by I love people. Yeah. I, don't, I don't commit adultery, not just because it says not to, no, because I love people. Yeah. 
I, I don't want to hurt other people, not just because it says don't steal, don't deceive, don't, don't gossip. It's because we are loving people. So what is holiness? Two things that I'd like to, it's, it's, it's not less than this, it's a lot more than this, but I want to just touch on two ideas as to what holiness is. Number one, it is to be set apart, and number two is to be made whole. The idea of being made holy or, or God calling you holy is simply to set you apart. It's to actually, it's to actually you are called to living a different life, a separate life. It does refer to things like being consecrated, devote, devoted, sacred, uh, but, but it ultimately means to be set apart from a common use to a sacred use. If you're following Jesus, you have been called to be holy. You've been called to a sacred purpose. You have been called to be set apart. And sometimes the challenge is that Christ followers interpret being set apart as being unnecessarily weird or fruity or loopy. No, no, you, I, think, I think that the set apartness should be deeply attractive, actually, at work. Yes, it may cause tension. Yes, there are going to be times where people are not going to be happy that you're not willing to cut corners or, or join in on gossip or, or, or help find you know, loopholes that are not actually legal to to avoid paying tax. Sure, there are going to be people that are not going to be in agreement and celebrating, giving you high fives and giving you a big hug. But, but I think that over time, there'll be a sense of trust built because of integrity. There'll be a sense of trust built because, because of the value system that is anchored in your life. And you'll be surprised at how when the same people that might be frustrated or irritated with you are in a position of need, in a season of need, and maybe all of the things that in the past have helped them are now insufficient, you may be surprised at how that person actually dares to come to you for some encouragement or perspective or wisdom because they've seen that you're different. Yeah. I remember years ago, a friend <coughs> going through an incredibly challenging, difficult time in his marriage. Like, it was complex and challenging. And, I'm, and I've got to tell you, if, 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 if God wasn't, if, if I didn't understand God in his heart, I would have been like, Run for the hills. And, and there are times if someone is, is in a position of ongoing abuse and, and destruction, yeah, but, but in this case, it, it wasn't that. And, and I remember him actually saying to me the one day, Jason, like, you're the only person that's not telling me to get divorced. Like every one of his friends are telling him to, you know, break it off and run. And, and with his perseverance, their relationship and her humility and, and repentance, it was restored quite beautifully. Like, it's okay for you to be set apart. It's okay for you to not be agreeing with the narrative of the majority. It's to be set apart, but it's also to be made whole. I want you to think in terms of holiness as being whole-ness. So, so, so as we are growing in holiness, it's not you're self-righteous, you think you're better than others. This is not about superiority and inferiority. In fact, the more, the more holy you become, the more humble you become. Because the more aware, trust me, you don't become perfect as you become holy, you become more aware. And you're like, ugh, ugh, am I still struggling? Anyone ever wrestle like, am I still struggling with some of this stuff? Why do I still get angry? Like, why do I still, you know, why, why, do, uh, why do I still entertain some of that gossip? Why do I still allow myself to, whatever, fill in the blank? I'm just saying that 
the more holy you become. It's, it's such a misused word. But, but we're becoming more whole. There's more integrity. We're, we're, bec- we're becoming increasingly healthy. And we don't have this on the screen, but I think another term that, that I've been thinking about and I'm challenged by is I think the more holy we become, the more set apart we are, the more whole we become, the more resilient we become. And I am convinced that we need resilience. We need resilience. We live in an increasingly complex world, an increasingly angry world, a world of increasing outrage. We need a healthy, life-giving, anchored resilience. That's just a little bit about what holy is. So, so when you read this in the Bible, don't, like, let's broaden our definition a little bit. But a couple of ideas as to why we should be holy that we find in the passages that we've just read. Why grow instead of partners? Why grow in wholeness? First is that it's because we have re- received gracious salvation. Yeah. We, when we realize how gracious the salvation is, gracious means we don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. It is an outrageous, undeserved gift. Only to the extent that we realize that and experience that, it's to that extent that we want to trust and obey God, which is another way of saying we want to grow in holiness. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 talks about the gracious salvation. Number two, we will want to obey because we trust. Verse 14 says, live as, live as God's obedient children. Again, if we trust him, we will want to obey him. If I do, go back to Adam and Eve. The issue beneath the issue was trust. It wasn't that they were dirty and perverted that they happened to eat the, the piece of fruit. It's not about fruit. Anyone that enjoys fruit is like, amen. It's not, it's not about that. That's why I would say that often the problem in our lives is not even the, if you want to use the word sin, it's not even the sin, it's the issue beneath the issue, which is ultimately a lack of trust. Think, back, th- think to anything in your life that you are leaning on to, to medicate or fulfill or distract you that you know is not actually life-giving. If you really sit with it long enough, we will come to an understanding that it's a trust issue. I don't trust God that if I persevere on the narrow path long enough, if I keep sowing the right seeds, making the right choices, I will eventually reap the right harvest. Right? That's what Galatians 6 verse 7 and 9 says. It says God won't be mocked. In other words, if we trust him, well, either way, it doesn't matter whether you trust him or not, he's not going to be mocked. You don't have to agree or disagree, believe or disbelieve. We will reap what we sow. So, so it's a trust issue when I'm saying, God, this doesn't feel right right now. This is actually uncomfortable. I don't feel like being disciplined, which is where discipline comes in. And, 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 but, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that as I keep spending time with you consistently, as I keep living a generous life, as I keep forgiving, as I keep trying to be faithful and diligent, as I keep trying to be a person of integrity, God, I'm going to trust you that at the right time, there will be a harvest. That is trust. Underneath every rebellion against God is an issue of trust. Number three, 
we will, or we are called to being holy because we are reminded that we will give an account. This is, this is not a concept that I think we find terribly um, sexy. Like it's not, it's, not, it's not exciting that one day we're going to actually stand before God and we're going to give an account for the lives that we've lived. He says in verse 17 that our heavenly Father to whom we pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residence. Now again, it's not an anxious fear. It's a reverence of God. I am going to give an account to you. And, and in case that offends you, which I understand, I want to move on to point four, which is that we've been ransomed at the highest price. He says in verse 18 and 19, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from your empty life. It goes on further on to say that it hasn't been done with something cheap. It's been done with the precious blood of Jesus. We spoke about this last week. So, so if we're thinking, oh, like it's not fair that I should have to give an account for my life. Well, if, if I'm following Jesus, my life has been ransomed. It's been bought. It's, it's been paid for. I am going to give an account to God with what I've done with my life. Jesus actually told the parable in Matthew 25. Three parables in the, the middle. The second of the three parables in Matthew chapter 25 is all about how we've been entrusted with certain things, and one day we will give an account. It's according to our ability. So I think that means it's according to your personality, your experiences, your life. That's why you can't compare to someone else, but we will give an account. We will give an account. And even though that might not be a terribly you know, warm and fuzzy concept in 2023, I'm saying that if you're following Jesus, if you're not following Jesus, you're not going to be bothered by that. If you're following Jesus, that should be something that gets our attention, but in a healthy way, in a life-giving way. Because again, I want to remind you that if I love God, I'm going to want to give a good account for my life, Right? He loves me, he's been kind to me. I'm gonna want to grow in pleasing him and in obeying him. So for this last section, I wanna touch on a couple of practices that is not just an opinion, it's not just, it's not just thoughts, even though we've, we've spoken about a lot of these things uh, throughout our church and, and historically over the last couple of years, but, but this is data-driven suggestions around practices that actually help people to grow in their set-apartness or, or what the authors would actually describe as being resilient. It's, it comes from a great book called Faith for Exiles and it's based on research, to my knowledge, I'm open to correction, but, but it's done by the Barnard Group, which as far as I know is the largest research group, if not in the world, then certainly in the Western world. So these aren't just opinions and thoughts. This is based on countless interviews, well, I guess they would be counted, but, but on on qualitative and quantitative research as they were trying to assess why is it that, that up to three quarters of young people that grow up in church leave the church. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for this, but what they have found is that there are five common traits, five common practices amongst <clears throat> young people in particular that have grown up in church that actually maintain a resilience in spite of living in what they called a digital Babylon. So in, so in spite of that, in spite of the pressures and the tensions and persecution and disagreement and, 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 and it doesn't matter where you live because we're living in a digital world. Yeah. So you can be living anywhere geographically, but actually most people, I mean, I think there's something like five billion people on social media. That's a lot of people. Do you, you want to know what the, what the top two 
things are that cause things to trend on social media, bearing in mind that five billion people on the, in the world are on social media, is anger is number one and fear is number two. Like, what does that do to your mind, to your soul, to your, to your heart? So they're saying, they're saying, okay, they've had to try, so they've identified that as a very small percentage, and then, they've, and then they spend time researching what are the common traits that actually help these people to remain resilient. So, five practices. They talk about resilience, but that I'm calling that'll set you apart. Number one is experiencing intimacy with Jesus. We've spoken a lot about that. I'm afraid that we can become numb to that idea and too familiar, which is scary for me because nothing else matters if we don't grow in, or if we're not consistent, if we don't position ourselves regularly to, to actually experience the relationship with God. And, and the point that they make is that being, I mean, they actually talk about a couple of hundred hours a year. I'm like, you're being very optimistic. Because the same research people will, will argue that even regular church goes will go to church one point. In fact, it used to be 1.8 times a month. Now it's kind of like once every three weeks, once every four weeks. So, so even, if you, even if you're in church for an hour, let's even call it two hours every week. That's, that's maybe between 50 to 70 to 80 hours in a year. The point that they are making is that that is not enough. It's not, like, like they're saying, if that's all you're relying on, to be resilient, to be able to, to grow into the person that God has called us to, to be, it's like they're saying, it's not enough. It's not enough for us to just do this. There have to be other life-giving practices during the week that, hey? Oh, thanks. <laughs> there is something wrong. <laughs> there, have to be, there have to be other life-giving practices that are helping us connect with God. And I'll be the first to tell you and confess that that's hard. It's not hard, but it's hard. It's not hard in the sense that it's, it's actually really simple, but it's hard in the sense that Sometimes you're gonna feel like all the powers of the dark forces are subtly distracting you from spending any time with God. That's why I say it's hard. It's, again, especially living in a digital age. It's a challenge. But unless we are actually ordering our lives during the week around being present to God, it's just gonna be competing worldviews. And, and if we are spending six hours a day filling our mind on, on a contrary worldview and maybe spending an hour every couple of weeks in, in listening to this kind of you know, contra, contrasting information, we're gonna be formed. Because what we give attention to, so attention leads to formation. What we give attention to forms us. And probably the best example of this in the Bible would be the story of Daniel. Don't have time to unpack that, but some of you would be familiar if you, if, if you were in Sunday school or maybe you've heard it preached on, but, but, but how Daniel landed up in the lion's den, etc. But before that, he was an exile. He'd been taken captive and, and moved to Babylon, but he was an impressive young man. And so he was given a lot of attention by the king. And, and eventually, this started to form jealousy in his colleagues, and they realized that the only way, think about this, the only way 
to discredit him. There was, there was nothing as far as his reliability at work, his faithfulness, his integrity, his, his productivity. There was nothing that they could say against him. And the only thing that they could say against him, the only way that they could try and get him out of the picture was to, do, was to trick him in some way connected to his relationship with God. Which is where they got the king to commit to an edict of where you, every time you hear a certain sound, you have to bow down and basically worship the king. Daniel was like, if I lose my life, I lose my life. He was in a habit of praying three times a day, every day, morning, noon, and night. And, and, and to some extent, this was visible. So, so people actually observed this or knew this. And so even when this edict was, was issued, Daniel still went about his business because it was his habit. I don't know how easily, if I were him, I don't know how easily I would suddenly form that habit of praying three times a day if now I feel like my life's, no, no, like, I'm like, I'll just pray with my eyes open as I'm walking, you know, and like without my lips moving type of thing. The fact that he was in the habit, I think gave, because of his relationship with God, there was a resilience, there was a security. Very similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Also, three captives taken into exile also, they were impressive and, and, and rose to a high level in the government. And again, they, they, their faith was used against them. And I love the statement when they are about to be thrown into a fire. Again, guys, it sounds great when you read it on the, on the back end of the story, and we know the end. Yeah. Think about it. You are about to be thrown. And like, I'm like, give me an injection, okay? I can be brave with like a lethal injection. Fire, like, that's a bit hectic. Yeah. Lions den. I mean, I'm going in with my head. Like, just make it quick, you know? <laughs> but a fire, these were their words. Our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we will still serve him. Yeah. That doesn't come from just, you know, some little seed that was sown when they were youngsters. That comes from a relationship with God. That comes from a resilience, a confidence. They are anchored in their Relation with God. All right, let me move on. Number two, a second practice that'll help us to be resilient, that'll help us to be set apart, that'll help us to be holy is what they call meaningful intergenerational relationships. This is data-driven. They're saying that, th that, that this is one of the five traits amongst people that actually remain resilient and can weather the storms. Meaningful intergenerational relationships. I, I reminded you last week that there's a passage towards the end of this letter in 1 Peter 5 where it talks about how the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. We have a spiritual enemy. Well, I would use the word in, in plural, enemies. And I don't think that he's looking for the weakest sheep. I think he's looking for the most isolated sheep. And I am painfully aware from my own experience how when trust is broken, when, 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 when hurt is you know, caused, when, when there's betrayal, the gravitational pull is to retreat. The gravitational pull is to isolate ourselves. And, I, and I'm just telling you, I think that the forces of darkness are like giddy. They're like, <laughs> he's alone where it matters. I mean, other people might think that person's vulnerable or open or... But, like, I don't know if you've ever had friends that you discover that they're in trouble when their whole life implodes. You're like, wait, what do you mean you're getting divorced? I didn't even know you guys, like, ever fought. 
Or, what do you mean you're leaving the faith? I didn't, what do you mean fill in the blank? In other words, where it matters most, I'm telling you that we need life-giving and, I would argue, intergenerational relationships. Now, now again, the temptation might be to say, well, you know, no one's reaching out to me. No older person's ever shown interest. That may be true, and, and I can't control that. I would just tell you that in my life, for the last 25-plus years, I am deeply grateful to God for, for certain key relationships. And in most of those cases, there have been people, there have been men that have been older than me, but in every case, up until recently, in every single case, I've pursued them. I think that there's a sense of responsibility that we have to take for our lives. I mean, only if you want to be resilient and set apart and you know, have faith in exile. Number three is what they call cultural discernment. More specifically, they use this phrase. In a complex and anxious age, these exiles are able to develop muscles of cultural discernment. And again, they're making the point that just, that just a little bit of teaching on a Sunday isn't enough to actually form the muscles that we need to actually think through the faith that we have and to wrestle over what we believe and why we believe it. And, and is that in the Bible? Why do I even believe that the Bible's true? Because, again, we're living in an age where all of that is disputed. And sometimes with really, really good arguments. We need to be robust learning communities. Again, it all depends on, 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 on the season of life and where people are at, but like even in life groups, I think that there should be groups where, where we are willing to wrestle over complex questions, tough questions, and be okay with not being sure about the answer. To, to actually engage together, to work through questions together. Peter says in chapter one, verse 13, prepare your minds for action. I really do believe that God, when, when he says, love the Lord your God for your heart, soul, mind, and strength, there is a, there's an element of where it is our affection. It is an element of where it is with your mind, so it's our attention. And there's an element of where it's our habits. It's with all your strength. So it's the, thing, the things we do do something to us. It's the habits that we engage in. Number four is what they call vocational discipleship. Vocational discipleship, where, where people actually come to understand, and that is a combination of teaching, of listening to other content. I mean, even, even for example, for example, we, your generosity helps us to pay for something called Right Now Media, which gives access to anybody that wants access to something like 20,000 videos, conferences, teachings, etc., And there, there's a whole section in there on work, work as worship. So again, it's taking responsibility. It's not just to keep going with the flow. It's to actually say, okay, God, help me to actually take responsibility for my life. I'm going to, I'm going to contact the church, get a link so that I can get access to this material. It doesn't cost you anything. And, and I'm going to start feeding my mind on 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 content that helps show me how there's actually a purpose at work. It's more than just a paycheck. 
It's more than just getting a job done. How, how wherever I am, God actually has a plan and a purpose where, where, where you're able to see your gifts and passions as part of God's calling. Prisca and I were talking the other day about like, what a calling we think it is for people to go into something like nursing. There was a reason why, why we were talking about that in particular. But just, just how, how like, let's be honest, the reward is nowhere near sufficient for the output. We were saying it's the same thing with teaching. The reward, in many cases, is nowhere near the, the output. There, there's a sense of, I th- I'm talking about people that do it well, because you can be a nurse and people are like, get me out of here, or just kill me now. You can be a teacher and do a lot of damage, but, but the teachers that make a difference, medical staff that make a difference, and I mean, we t- I mean you can include social workers, but actually, in, in every field, for, to actually live with a purpose that is bigger than just paying the bills, there's, there's a sense of calling. Knowing how the Bible applies to our different areas of interest and actually living out our faith in the workplace. And then lastly, the fifth characteristic that they are referring to in terms of being set apart, being resilient, which is, remember, this is what God's calling us to in every cultural moment, for the last 2,000 years, this isn't new for today, this has had to be applied by followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years, for us to actually be strong, to grow in our wholeness and our health, to be resilient. Number five is a counter-cultural mission. To be committed to a counter-cultural mission. They, they use the following language. They allow these people allow themselves to have their entitlement and self-centered tendencies curbed by engaging in countercultural mission. And it is countercultural. Maybe you read this or heard this recently where, where a survey was done amongst American young people and amongst uh, Chinese young people. This is all relating to TikTok, which some of you know is created by, like it's, it's a Chinese-owned firm. They were touching on how the boundaries are completely different in the different countries. So in America, it's, it's open for all, and you can enjoy people <coughs> drinking out of toilet bowls and all the rest. And, and in China, the, 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 the content is curated, and there are timelines attached. I think it's from like 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. So then it goes offline. No one can be sitting, scrolling, and feeding their minds <coughs> past, I think it's 10 p.m. in the evening. And, and, and there's also some like intentionality around constructive... Um, constructive content. And, and the research shown was that the number one uh, career or vocation that young people wanted in America within this particular band that they were looking at was to be an influencer. If you don't know what that means, because you're not young enough, okay. But, but, but as, as to be a social media celebrity, you know, anyway, to be an influencer. Whereas the number one uh, aspiration or the most popular aspiration amongst the Chinese uh, young people that they interviewed in the same age group was to be an astronaut. And they were actually making the point, by the way, making the point. Now, you can read into this however you want to from a geopolitical point of view. I, I, just, I just found the point interesting. That in the past, a country would have to defeat their enemy through terrorism. Now, a country can defeat their enemy through pleasure. You think of the digital media age that we're in and how much pleasure. So the, so the ongoing addiction to dopamine, 
hit of the dopamine hit of the dopamine hit, how, how, how it is, I mean, you can go into all kinds of details to the effects it's having literally on the brain, on the ability to concentrate, on the ability to focus. The point I'm making is that our culture, if we're, and we are living in a Western culture, we're not living in a culture where, 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 where input and, and worldview is being you know, filtered and monitored. We are living in a culture where, where we have to know it's going to be countercultural. But it's not countercultural because it's about who's right and wrong. It's not that. It's not about that. It's about loving people. And for it to be countercultural means it, it is countercultural to not be entitled, to not be self-centered. It's countercultural. It's countercultural to want to be generous with no strings attached. Someone in the church was telling me the other day how they got talking about tithing and, and all the rest. I forget how it, how it even started, but but he was saying how when they went to apply for a bond, the lady at the bank could not understand because you know if you could apply for a bond, you've got to give them your salaries and and go through your budget. Like she could not understand. Like, wait, wait, what? what what's, the, what's, what's, what's tithe? And it didn't, didn't matter how many times they tried to explain, back and forth, back and forth, like she couldn't get her head. Eventually they're like, it's, it's donations. <laughs> because it's, think about it, it is so countercultural. It is so countercultural. We were at a, at, at a wedding yesterday, <clears throat> and uh, Sue's cousin, one cousin, she's got a million cousins, one cousin was making a comment about uh, because the other cousin that got married, one of a million, um, is, is a very genuine, passionate Christ follower. And so the cousin was saying to Sue, like, kind of like tongue in cheek, oh, I don't know what they're going to be doing tonight. She's like, yeah, having sex. Um, and then, <clears throat> I, didn't, I don't even know how, how it got to it, but then Sue mentioned, that, like, yeah, Jason and I also slept together for the first time on our wedding night. She's like, what? By the way, she knows I'm a pastor. She knows who's a pastor. Like, we've been in the family for, I've been in the family for 24 years. That family with a million cousins. Like it, it is, like she could not get her head around. What do you mean? You, what do you mean you ate? It's countercultural. But it's also a mission. It is not, guys, if being, if being different feeds pride, man, you're helping the enemy just as much as, you might as well just go with the flow. It should never feed pride. It should never feed arrogance. It should never feed hurting other people. And the church historically has done so much damage with, their, with our rightness. I've got to say our, because it's us. It's our part, I'm part of it. Historically, we've done so much damage with our rightness. When, in Corinthians, Paul actually says, don't judge those outside the church. We judge those inside the church. In other words, there's, an, there's an accountability for those of us that are actually followers of Jesus. It's amazing how, how Christians are tempted to, to place their energy on judging people that are not in a relationship with God, expecting them to act and behave and function as though they're in a relationship with God. They're not in a relationship with God. That's like me expecting some stranger. So, I don't know. I go into some South American jungle somewhere and I get miffed with them that they don't know what Sue cares about. They're like, who's Sue? Surrender. I surrender. Like, like <laughs> it, it, think about it. It's weird. Why do we get so... Anyway, okay. I'll end with this. It's a, le a lengthy quote from, the, from these guys. <clears throat> Countercultural mission is the relentless pursuit of faithful and fruitful, faithful and fruitful, it's going to be a fruit, presence in our communities by living differently from cultural norms, which means, so that is pursuing holiness. 
and trusting God to show up. Despite cultural pressures towards entitlement and self-centeredness, Christians pursue a life of sacrifice and service to others. No strings attached. This is not merely a social club for doing good. Pursuing countercultural mission means acknowledging that God's design for life is much bigger than we can imagine and helps us address gnawing questions like what is the significance of life and what kind of legacy am I leaving? Which, by the way, is the question we have on the wall as we walk out. We are called to be holy, set apart in the best possible way, in the most life-giving way.